0: Hello, welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I'm your host today, Natter Davit. Today on the panel, we have Lucas Hayes. Hello, everybody. And David Sedia. Hey, everybody. Hey, folks, I just want to
1: let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a back end. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called Eleven DJS, and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a backend and it'll do some of the work for you. I just I just love it. So if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the back end without having to actually program the back end, then give them a try. Go check them out at Netlify.com.
0: So today our topic is going to be discussed between us as the panelists, and we're going to be kind of talking about styling and React modern, you know, ways of of using some of the newer frameworks, and and we're going to talk about CSS and JS, and uh, maybe you know, just using CSS alone and kind of like what techniques people are using and maybe what we're using in our current projects. Yeah, so to kick things off, Lucas, can you kind of give us an overview of like what you use in your day-to-day workflow at your job and and what you, if you you didn't have to use what your company was using, like what would you reach for, uh, you know, just uh, things that you like to use yourself?
2: Yeah, nice. So today I work uh, with Styled Components, we have like a 100% like CSS and JS solution there at ZocDoc. Even one of our co-workers is one of the core maintainers, Evan, Scott. So we started working with style components at some point. We were working with CSS modules for a while, like plain CSS, then CSS modules, then style components, and we we're pretty happy with it. One thing uh, before we start talking about current practice, I, w- I would love to, to tell it a little bit of a story that i think resonates with a lot of people that are front-end developers was like how i started being a front-end developer i was hired at this company as a junior dev it was an e-commerce company here in brazil i'm in brazil now as a vacation yay so i was hired in this company and they uh, uh, as soon as i was hired they were like okay so we have these teams that are available and i was like okay where's the fire Right. I want to work like in the team that is like solving the the, the the big problems of the company. The company was migrating to microservices and they said, okay, so the fire is in the front end. So the front end is literally like in a terrible situation because now all that complexity of the API layer, a lot of that complexity went to the front end. So they had this Angular.js, Angular One application. Then I was like doing this asynchronous work with like 12, 17 different uh, uh, REST APIs and things were a mess. There were a lot of bugs, a lot of race conditions and stuff like that. So at least for a whole year, I was working on the front-end application and I was barely touching CSS. So it's interesting. Like I was working on browser code, browser only, that was not, not even like server-side rendering code. It was like, only browser code uh, code I was working with JavaScript and I was not touching CSS because the other people who were working this team most of them were like from design from a design background so that part was like really well covered. they were really good at that and that was that was what they were working before when when the company was like rendering templates. they were like creating the templates and that's it so like the CSS part was very well uh, developed there. And they needed help like in the JavaScript part that was like really now a gigantic application. So when I talk to people, I, I, I see that this resonates a lot. People who work with front-end, they are front-end developers, but they barely touch CSS. So it took me at least a year to start learning CSS. As I was saying, like I, I did a lot of down-arrow-driven development, which is like I put like play on the dev tools of chrome uh i don't know if it was i didn't know if it was display block or display in line i was just like dude the down arrow until things were the way i wanted yeah. them to look yeah and then okay okay this is it. like position absolute relative i had no idea what that was i was like down arrowing it and then i like, go okay all right it's position relative i'm safe now so only after a year that i was like okay now i need to sit down and really say that because the asynchronous part and the framework the application architecture part was like better solved now we had like no accidents in production then i started little by little working on more css front front end work so this is interesting it's interesting how i, I still meet people who are very advanced in javascript and on react code and they don't know a lot of css
3: yeah, I think my my experience was kind of similar getting into friend because I'd done a lot of I guess I wouldn't even really call it back end. It was like C stuff like low level mm-hmm. stuff. And then my first like web development type job was like full stack developer. And the company was kind of broken up into like feature teams, I guess. And we would sort of have one little feature, we would carve out some slice of the app that we'd work on. And a lot of those things were like the styling was already there. We just needed to add some feature or something, and it was so it was easy, and like you didn't have to touch the CSS very much. Mm-hmm. But every now and then there would be something like you know the designer would come to us with like we're going to make this new screen, and then you know it was sort of this weird hot potato thing between the developers. Like well yeah. you know, people were like I don't want to touch the CSS. Well you know give that give that to the, the the one guy who's good at CSS over there. The guy who's like an art major who turned into a <laughs> into a developer <laughs> and. So, yeah. So it was interesting. Like we we had um, a lot of developers, but not that many of them. Sort of either were good at CSS or, or wanted to do the CSS stuff. And I remember working on one of those. We, we did pair programming, and then me, me and my pair got you know some feature to implement, and it had a lot of styling in it. My pair was like, I'm terrible at that CSS stuff. I don't want to do it. So I was like, I guess I'll figure it out. And then, yeah. you know, kind of stumbled through it. And it was it was a lot of that, you know, the down hour driven development and stack overflowing, you know, just, just Googling for like, how do I center a div? How do I get this thing to align? And just kind of copying and pasting and hoping for the best. You know, eventually yeah. I, I figured out more about how it actually works, but that was the beginning. Yeah.
2: The vertically center things. Mm. Was like super real for me yeah. <laughs> for a long yeah, time. So I was like, I have no idea how to first come Yeah, it's like it took. Yeah, it took a, a long time. Is was that a similar situation with you, Nether?
0: Yeah, like so. Uh, just talking about vertically centering things. Yeah, it was basically a bunch of hacks that we had to do back then. Yeah. But I mean, it's interesting if you talk about the you know how CSS plays into being a front end dev. Now, if you see discussions on Twitter, you'll find like people that think that front end dev does not even you don't even need to know JavaScript to even be a front end dev. You only need to know HTML and CSS. And then you see the complete opposite. You see people that say that. If you don't know JavaScript, you can't consider yourself a front-end dev. And there's, like, you know, very passionate conversations about this stuff, it seems, like, online about people that think one way or the other. I don't really think it really matters. I think it's, like, different companies have different needs. Different applications have different needs. Mm -hmm. You might work at a massive company where they only need one person that literally just writes CSS all the time. Or you might work at a startup where you're not only writing JavaScript and CSS, but you're even writing writing back-end code. You're just all over the place. So I think it kind of I don't think there's uh, anyone should categorize whether or not CSS plays into the mix as being a front end developer. You kind of like work at a place and you fit the needs of what that company needs based on what skills that you can bring to the table and you Mm -hmm. just do what you can do. But um, for me, yeah, I I mean, I, I originally learned CSS early on. I think CSS was the first time I felt like I was actually doing some programming or something when I did like a hover effect with HTML (laughs) <laughs> and then I felt like I was like, yeah. programming, and then um, and then you know I got pretty good at CSS, and 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 then I learned JavaScript, and I kind of learned it just you know all at the same time I guess you'd say. Nice. So pretty much all of the apps that I work on these days, I write so I write a lot of CSS still. I write a lot of styling in React Native. You know, people are also pretty passionate about how they write their styling. You see people getting really in, in heated discussions now and the CSS and JS wars versus just the strictly CSS wars. You know, people like are really you know pro one or the other. I think it depends on the app, again. I don't think there's like a right or a wrong way. I think, I think it's a lot easier to manage much larger applications when you're using CSS and JS because you don't have to worry about people understanding the, the cascade and, uh, and dealing with legacy code. Being able to not have to deal with that is just a pretty nice thing to, to not have to deal with. But I think if you're working on a smaller application, or maybe you're the only one working on that application, CSS still makes a lot of sense. But yeah, starting off for me, I, I pretty much learned everything at once, and I, I think being able to style things and build build out not only a functional application but also something that looks pretty good is a definitely a good skill to have. Yes, and
2: also like I think that beauty and interface is is like one of the it. it it resonates a lot with, with a, a sense of accomplishment when you create something that it's like a complete application. This this is a, a privilege as a, as a front end uh, developer. It's like we can actually like build things like for users. So I, I think that that feels really good. When I, I remember like years ago, like maybe ten years ago, maybe even more, I did like actually like mosaics, like real mosaics with like tiles and stuff. And it was like really for for like some months, I was doing it, and it felt so good to actually be building something like in the real world, so when you get back to software, it feels like a little bit weird, but I think that interfaces are probably like the closest to yeah uh, yeah closest to that, like you create like an api and the api is awesome it's 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 really good, it feels really good, but like creating a, an interface has something to it so yeah even, something yeah.
3: Tangible, but there isn't. There, I like. I like that too. That's something that's always drawn me to software development, like being able yeah. to to make the computer do something and, and see the output of that thing, not just have it kind of hidden away.
2: Yes, yes, and and an output that that people that are not developers can relate to that. So this is something that it, that I think it is is really special about it. And CSS can give you that. So that's really interesting. Going to the CSS and JS since since you brought it, matter So do you believe that the CSS and JS abstractions, they make it easier or they make it harder for people to start learning it? Because I've, I've heard like both arguments.
0: I think it makes it easier because you can have everything in one component and in, in one file. You can have your styles at the bottom. I mean, of course you could possibly do this with, uh, with just the HTML and a style tag as well. But I think being able to have a really concise component, like a React component, and you have a div in an h1, for example, and then you have a style block down at the bottom with a style object. Then you have, then you just start writing styles, and you, and you can maybe even use code sandbox or something and, and save and like see the styles update. It's just super easy. You don't really have to understand that you have to put the script tag, you know, at a certain part of the um, of the index.html, yeah. and and you don't have to worry about like what comes first and what comes last. You pretty much are declaratively saying you're just you're just learning the actual styling properties as opposed to learning everything else that kind of comes along with it. And it seems to me, if I was learning right now and my son is learning and I'm and that's the way we're doing it, is okay. we're just using like code sandbox and, and using CSS and JS. And it's pretty pretty straightforward. It's a lot easier to me than when I was trying to learn it, having to like import, you know, a CSS file and work and have it you know, at the top of the of the of the HTML file or even in a JavaScript file required or something like that. Yeah. What yeah. about you? So
3: I've sort of mostly stuck with plain CSS. That's kind of my go-to. Either either that or, or SCSS, because mostly for the nesting. But uh yeah, I, I think its i have I s I've I've tried um a little bit with CSS and JS and just like I think there's there's some muscle memory there that like my fingers like to type dashes between things and they don't like the camel case the CSS <laughs> so that's a little weird to get used to and like quoting I don't know I guess that all the different CSS and JS solutions yeah. kind of do things differently too
2: yeah the the one we use at Zocdoc we use styled components with the string with the string syntax. The tag. Template. Yeah, the tag and template. So yeah. it's like the, the actual properties and values, it's like 100% like nice. normal CSS. And you can have like a VS Code extensions that has like all the autocomplete and syntax highlighting of normal CSS. So it feels, yeah, it feels pretty nice. It's interesting. I also think that the CSS in JS makes it easier to learn. This is similar to the effect, I think, of TypeScript in JavaScript. I think the TypeScript makes it easier to write javascript to learn javascript itself because the the typing annotations and the the autocompletes and the stuff that comes with typescript make makes you like I, I think it it's almost like a live documentation for it to learn about things so if you're learning about like some web apis and things like that i think that actually like typescript tooling helps you writing javascript so i think the same thing with css and js you you end up like learning because it's almost like, yeah, I don't want to say sandbox because it's not called, it's, yeah, it's contained, it's self-contained. The isolation for you because a really hard part of CSS is that when you have an application and you never touch CSS and someone tells you, all right, so change the visual of that part on your app. Back in the day, we had like a, a bootstrap CSS added and then custom CSS files, so like, no matter what you changed, it had also so many other rules overriding or not what you're doing. So like, you couldn't even learn it properly <laughs> because like you don't know the effects that things were having on 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 the divs that that you were that you were styling. So I think that the fact that CSS and JS make it self-contained as a, as a for for you, you don't need to do anything else to to make it like self-contained to, to that components make it easier to 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 see how things actually work
3: it removes that whole extra layer of complexity of like you have to know mm-hmm. how the yeah. css cascade works and also like your particular project like knowing which file to change and
2: exactly yeah
3: worrying about like i change, I make this change here and it breaks mm-hmm. something three pages away or something
2: yeah but i also don't believe that this this fight i don't i don't think it's a fight it's like it's not that CSS and JS is better or worse than CSS. Like CSS is what it is, right? CSS is the thing you need to know CSS. Yeah, you need to it. CSS, yeah. CSS and JS is like one tool to help you with like particular challenges that you may encounter or not in your in your application. So, sometimes I think that we create like this this like fights this versus situations. Only like to 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 gain some clicks here and there, but like in reality, it's everything is like a tool and and it's a trade off. Nothing is like hundred percent better than anything else. So
3: yeah, I think I think like like Nader was saying too that that it really depends on the size of the project and everything. I think developers tend to think about the future a lot. Like we we try to optimize for you know once once this thing reaches massive scale. It will need these features or like as the app grows larger it'll need this or it'll need it'll need really good performance or whatever and so i think we're sort of prone to some of us anyway are prone to picking like picking technologies that will help three years down the road or whatever versus like what do you need now to get the job done and maybe maybe those things that that will help later on or kind of overkill for what you need right now
2: yeah i don't know if we're changing subject too much but what what should we do in though in those situations like do you, when is it correct to think about three years in advance and when is it when is it not
0: um i'm a big fan of this topic <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I really like to kind of dig in and, and try to predict what's going to be popular and try to ride that train because it's it's so far been a really positive thing for me in my career to kind of like be able to predict these things so your question was like when or, or like when should you like pick something and 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 stick to it. Like, is that your question?
2: No, it's like uh, you're you're writing an application, and and then you take some some architectural some code decisions in your application, and you say like, this is going to be good for when this application is like a hundred thousand lines long, or when we have like a thousand features, this will help us. This abstraction that, that that I'm adding here.
0: So you're speaking more in the terms of abstraction, like what abstractions to use. Yeah, or, or even like new libraries and and stuff like that. Uh, I, I think for me, it's always use use the least amount of libraries possible. Never add a library if you can possibly roll it yourself, because then you're not really relying on someone else's you know work to maintain and keep that up. Or if you have a bug, you don't have to like go to them to find it. If there's any way that you can roll it yourself, I always say roll it yourself. Uh, I'm like a hundred and ten percent in that in that bucket. And it seems to have worked out pretty good for me because when you control everything, you don't have to deal with anyone else's um, time efforts. You don't have to kind of wait for them to fix something. You have you're able to fix it, and even if that means sometimes uh, forking someone else's repo um, and then just con- and then just including their you know their whatever they built into your app, and then you kind of can start continue maintaining it yourself. If, even if it comes to that, I've done that a few times. I'm a big fan of of not using dependencies unless I absolutely have to.
2: Yeah, this this is an interesting su- subject because, so I I tend to agree with you, but I've also been in a situation where there was just too too much like homegrown tooling, and the devs were not putting as much effort on the application itself on what differentiates your business. Like in Zocdoc, we had uh, one year ago. I started a migration. we had like a homegrown semantic versioning thing, you know, like something that that would like it was like a wrapper around a version of semantic release, so we were using that, and then at some point, like we were doing maintenance on that internal library and and it's like the devs thought that that work was like better spent on actual features that make like the company. Uh, differentiated from from its competitors, and then we started using the, the community owned normal semantic uh, release application. So I understand like dependency management is really hard. It's like it, it's really easy to introduce like vulnerabilities on your application and then you depend on other people. Yeah, but sometimes like if you also build everything at home, you, you're not using maybe your resources to more strategically.
3: Yeah, definitely a balance there.
2: Yeah. I
3: think the I, I sort of lean toward I'm i I'm a, sort of a DIY person. I like to I like to build my own things, but usually I'll 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 do that if it's if it's something small, like instead of small installing, I don't know, like the, the whole left pad debacle from a few years ago when, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. one line of code and it, it broke half the internet. Um <laughs> that kind of thing. It's like, yeah, sure, write your own, you know, write your own left pad function. That's that's not too bad. But stuff like writing your own, writing your own build pipeline or something like that—that that is like a whole other level of complexity that I probably wouldn't yeah. want to try to own. But I think a lot of that depends on like when, like in the, in the context of a company, like when the company was started. But I think a lot of that stuff—I don't know—I've worked at some companies where they had their own homegrown build system or something, and you know when they when they built it, when they started building it, you know, five, ten years ago you know ci cd wasn't really a thing like we didn't have all these modern tools and stuff so they had to build something and then you know at some point it was probably just easier to keep adding features than it was to migrate to whatever yeah. the popular option was or whatever
2: yeah i agree yeah it's everything's like history i tend to 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 think that the my my default reaction is the same as nether like don't don't add unnecessary dependencies like we've been burned too much by by those and if you want to get scared, just run like a, a security scan on your dependencies. And then you'll see like a bunch of warnings. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. And then in addition to, you know, in addition to having to deal with, you know, maintaining things that aren't yours, you also have to deal with a lot of times those libraries will have a lot of additional features that you don't need. So you add additional sauce to your application mm-hmm. when you don't need it. And again, you can even go in and just read the code and pull out their code and, and just use it you know I think as long as it's open source and and you know mm-hmm. you think it's cool to do that I've done that so <laughs> I don't know if that's an okay thing to do but yeah I've done that for sure
2: yeah, definitely this is a probably the default thing that that I would do, but like from time to time it's it's this is like I, I like to 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 hire tools when when the tool is like generic enough that is well solved, like monitoring tools, like we don't need to create our monitoring solutions, right? Like we can use like Datadog or SpeedCurve or things like that. And I think this are this is like the perfect thing that okay like if we hire like the price you pay yearly for such a tool is like so so small compared to like putting like a team of devs working on a worse version of that tool that is gonna yeah. be homegrown, yeah. right? So I think with libraries is the same, but instead of like money, since it's an open source library, the what you're putting is like time of your devs into the equation, right? Because you don't have like a support or something like that. It's like if you're in the open source game or in the open source game, if you are lucky enough to, to be using like a project that you just like put issues and people solve it for you, it's like okay, but like usually you have to put more effort into that. And I think yeah, we underestimate those those things. Usually we think it's like a a standard library, right? You, you should not treat like open source as standard library. It's like not not everything works as intended. If it doesn't, you need to put some work on it and contribute to it.
0: Yeah, and I think that's another good point is like, how do you pick the libraries that you want to use that uh, that you want to, there are things that you want to treat as a standard library. You want to treat it as something that robust. I think if you stick with things that are very, very well maintained that are sometimes maybe even maintained by a company, like a large company like Facebook or something, or maybe even someone that's really well known for mm-hmm. for maintaining their things. I mean, you can kind of look at the track record of like some of people's other projects and tell whether or not they'll either be maintained by them or they're popular enough to be picked up by the community, and um, that's another big factor for me. If I use something, I want to make sure that it's that it is maintained, and um, it's pretty easy nowadays to kind of like look at the history and see, you know, if this thing is probably going to keep being maintained or not. So,
2: yeah, one hundred percent, yes, yeah. We were considering using Next.js, and that was like one of the the key points. It's like is it going to disappear tomorrow like is it going be we have some like forgotten libraries that that we use there like it 's been years without even like the Npm registry we just changed it there. We used to it was Sinopia the npm registry. it was like a banddalware for three years. We were still using it, and there, it was like every problem that would would happen. we were like, oh my God, yes, we need to change it." <laughs> <laughs> because it was not yeah. being maintained at all. Yeah. And maybe everything changes when you are like on a Facebook scale that you can actually have a bunch of teams working on your platforms and creating the the home growth tooling for you that you believe is going to make every, everybody more uh, effective. So maybe there there's a scale where you can just like build everything yourself and, and it's okay. One story about Dependencies. I mentioned that we, we use styled components as ZocDoc. And Evan was working with us, Evan Scott, amazing dev, one of the like strongest devs I've ever worked with. We started having problems with server-side rendering in styled components. It was not a solved problem. There was like memory leaks everywhere. It was like a mess. And and then he decided, he said, like, all right, can you give me some days? So so I'm I'm gonna contribute to, to the project because like I think I found the issue. So I'm just gonna start like issuing a couple of PRs to them to solve it. And they they loved his PRs and they made him a maintainer. And I think that's great for for like his career too. So there's that side of things too.
3: Yeah, that's awesome. It's tough to decide like that worry about whether you think the thing's gonna go away or whether it's gonna last. And it kinda seems like I, I think maybe we're moving into an era where open source stuff almost seems more trustworthy or more like more like it's going to have greater longevity than something commercial where, you know, like you, you mentioned that um, the internal NPM registry and I think the company that I was at used one of those too, and it was like, it was a paid product. It wasn't an open source thing. And then it was kind of like, well, if this little company goes away, then, you know, <laughs> or if they don't feel like fixing the thing, then it's gone and we can't fix it ourselves and nobody else is using it. So it almost seems safer to pick something that's, that's wildly popular and open source. than it's like, well,
1: enough people are using this thing and it's maintainable by the community that it'll probably stick around. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io.
2: One good story is Storybook, right? Storybook was maintained main, mainly by a company and the company dissolved. Yeah, and the, community, the community took the, 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 the project, right? And it's yeah. and it's amazing. It's in a better shape than, than it was before.
0: What yeah, do you it think great.
2: happens? Do you, do you think, like, imagine that maybe something happens to Facebook and Facebook decides to drop its support for React. Do you think the same thing would happen? The community would just, like, pick it up? It seems for like React? Be,
0: yeah. Yes. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's just so many big, massive companies using it. It's like a business decision at that point. Yeah. I think you might see a bunch of people try to, like, fork it and become like the de facto maintainers. And you might see people actually even argue over who should be yes. like the, the main version of React. You know? Yeah,
3: like who should control it or whatever. I mean, there's already the spin-off ones like Preact and Inferno and stuff that are kind of like API compatible. So it seems like it's, it's a, a, a well understood thing that people could you know yeah. use different alternatives and it, it'll probably work pretty well.
0: Yeah, I've tried to look at the React code base and it always just makes me completely—I don't know—I have no idea what the hell is going on when I look at it. Basically, <laughs> yeah,
2: it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, I love those those uh, initiatives that people have from time to time to explain parts of of these uh, yeah of these, yeah this internal code. It's always really interesting, but it's like code full of full of history, full of optimizations, and full of edge cases. There were like so yeah. Whenever code is like old enough, it's really tough to, to follow. But one thing I like about React Code is that it's very well commented. So the documentation is like so good. Smart people there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we're speaking about the future and you nether said that you like to try to look like some years ahead. So what would yeah. be yeah, what well, what would be your bets today? Where do you think
0: things are going? So as far as like styling is concerned or just in general? Let's start with styling and maybe go to other. I mean, I don't really have too much thoughts on styling. I think we basically have haven't figured it out. We're, we're in a pretty good place. The things that we argue about these days would be like we would be like really, really lucky to have like 10 years ago. If we would have looked at what we have today, how easy it is to build things, we would wish that we would possibly even be close to where we are today like we're in such a good place i think people like just like to argue about stuff on the internet and and that's why you see a lot of these discussions that kind of like get heated when in reality they're not that serious you know everything works pretty well like you can you can spin up a new react application and add you know a graphql api and add some styling and build something and in a couple of hours that you would have taken you probably weeks or months back in the day So as far as like styling is concerned, you know, you'll see, you'll see, you know, more abstractions that come in in the form of probably a lot of CSS and JS libraries. And we'll see probably, you know, maybe a couple of new things come out there. But I think in general, we're going to see some stuff around cross-platform that's going to continue to improve. I think Flutter is going to continue to get better. And you might see people start writing with their web applications in Dart. And then I think with what Expo is doing, uh, being able to deploy, you know, React code across React Native and, and web, that's pretty interesting. I think you'll see a lot more of this cross-platform stuff because it's just business business uh, decisions that these companies are making to write cross, cross-platform. It's, it just makes a lot of sense for them financially. And um, you're seeing a lot of investment in, in, in those different ecosystems with a lot of the larger companies so you're seeing Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, all the big companies investing in it. That means they're doing it for a reason. They're not just playing around. They need to be able to get more engineers. They need to work faster. Cross-platform offers the opportunity to kind of do all of that. And then what I'm really interested in, um, and of course, I work at AWS, and this is kind of the reason I took the job there, is uh, they're, you're seeing kind of like the convergence, I think, around front-end and back-end and full-stack development. You're kind of seeing all of that come together with some of the tooling that you're seeing coming out from companies like Zeit with their, with their now deployments where you're able to deploy these serverless uh, functions pretty easily, Netlify functions, Firebase, and then what we're doing it with Amplify. I think that's kind of the future. Uh, these abstractions over serverless and functions and also managed services, you're able to kind of be a single shop or maybe even one developer and build out infrastructure and front-end code and write the apis that interact with all that stuff and build something that actually can scale to like millions of users in literally a couple of hours you're able to do that like literally right now and i think that that's so powerful and a lot of companies are kind of recognizing that and we're seeing a lot of investment in aws and more of these managed services and better abstractions and you're also seeing i think in microsoft and you're seeing it at Google. Uh, Google's investing heavily in Firebase, a lot of their native SDKs for Firebase. I would say not the native SDKs, but the client SDKs. They're investing in adding more features, things around machine learning and stuff like that. So I think what the future is going to be cross-platform, and it's going to be full-stack serverless, like serverless uh, application development that front-end developers can dive into using their existing skill set without having to learn back-end development.
2: Yeah, that's really good. That, yeah. That's a. It's interesting because I think that the most the most ambitious prediction you made is that nothing really serious is going to happen on CSS, <laughs> because in the front end world, like everything happens so fast, they're probably saying that nothing really fancy is going to happen. Well, well, I mean, the most you're
0: gonna. I mean, already what you're seeing is people kind of just doing the same thing but doing it in slightly different ways.
2: Yes. And yes.
0: you know, you're not seeing like this this 10x improvement over um, you know what what we've done 10 years ago versus what we've done now there still isn't like that 10x improvement that i see you're, like you can still just create a style sheet and import it today just like you could 10 years ago now css and js like some people don't even like it as much as the old way like that's mm-hmm. that's part of this conversation like to me i like it better but some people will argue that it's not better so like we haven't seen anything there i think what you're going to see though is in these cross platform Framework. someone might create something there that is able to maybe you know improve mm-hmm. in some way or something yeah. like that. I mean, I've looked at even Flutter's uh, way of doing styling, and I still kind of like React Native's way and, and the CSS and JS way a little better. It's a little bit, um, it just makes a lot of sense um, compared to yeah. kind of like Flutter's styling.
2: It's interesting how people complain a lot about CSS and stuff, but like React Native decided to go on a very like CSS uh, style way of creating your your styles and it works like so well it's so good to be able to use flexbox everywhere flexbox makes like so much sense instead of like calculating where pixels oh yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Flexbox
0: is beautiful yeah, yeah.
3: it's in just... grid too we've got we've got some good stuff with css now that we would have been yeah. awesome to have a few years ago
0: yeah, 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 I would love to try out some CSS. Grid. I haven't even honestly even used it yet. <laughs> Me either. Me either. Yeah. I've used it
3: only only a tiny bit. yet. Yeah, it's it's pretty nice though. From what I've played with.
2: Yeah, that's really good. And and about the serverless, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Like if you see like the back in like maybe like ten years ago, like it was really common to to just have like virtual machine machines that you would like SSH into them, like into production machines and understand what's happening. Between like your communication between your database and your servers in the same machine, and try to understand. And today with the with these serverless, the serverless products, like things are, it's so much simpler. Yeah, it brings a lot of new, brings a lot of new challenges too. That maybe the innovations will be like like, I think it's it's very difficult if you just like start spinning up lambdas and stuff like that. It's very difficult to understand. Where our system is at any point, like uh, in terms of like both monitoring and like rolling back. How do you roll back a version when you actually like deployed five different things? You know things like that. So probably the next step is like having like really amazing tooling that makes it super easy to create like a whole serverless architecture and things like that. And maybe that already exists, and I just don't know it exists.
0: <laughs> so. You're saying like the ability to bin- to spin up a serverless architecture as a front end developer, or
2: yeah, yeah, like a, a really easy way uh, to spin up like a complete like application with like seven or eight different serverless thing and like roll back that that deployment and stay with the previous one if something bad happens. Oh, okay, got you. Know, gotcha, like, gotcha. All these all these uh, different parts because like when I was playing with Lambdas at some point, that was like a moment where I was lost in terms of life, like, oh, now, yeah, I, I need to roll back. It's like I just applied that Lambda over there, and now, okay, so which order? Oh, Interdependency there, yeah.
3: So that's, yeah. A good,
0: that's a good idea. I, I might have to see if we can in, in implement something like that and Amplify, because right now we do have multiple environments where you can basically deploy your entire environment with multiple Lambda functions, and then you can actually check out a new environment that will clone your existing environment And it'll actually duplicate all of those Lambda functions and a new environment. So basically, it'll be the name of your basic Lambda function dash the name of your environment. So maybe you uh, create a new environment for creating a new new API endpoint or something like that. It'll actually literally clone your entire backend, your infrastructure. It'll, It'll clone all of your Lambda functions, your authentication service, all of the API gateway. And then you can develop on this new environment, test it out. And then once once it seems to work, you can then merge it back into your existing environment. And the only things that will change will be any changes that happen between you know the time that you made that clone. But the problem is, I don't think we have a way to roll back. So I might have to mention if there's any way that we could possibly kind of like keep up with those deployments and maybe roll them back. That's, that's interesting that you said that.
2: Yeah, because like no matter what you do, a lot of like the main problems that, that, that we come across are all, all like in production, right?
0: It's so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Things just happen, but you Things can't connect sometimes.
2: It's like when you open the gates, that's when people will like click everywhere in their application, will like insert every type of bots, will enter your. Yeah, that's a. Exciting times! What do you think, David? What what do you think it's it's going to be like the future?
3: I don't know. I'm I'm interested to see what happens with WebAssembly because I do think there's there's like we've got all these people who kind kind of came up on JavaScript and the front end the front end world is is very JavaScript focused. But I still think there's there's plenty of developers out there, all like a lot of back-end developers and stuff who don't want to do JavaScript or you know haven't taken the time to learn it yet or something like that. And then I think people would sort of prefer to Right in one language that is the back-end language. And I'm interested to see what happens with that. I wonder if people will kind of start writing like web apps in Ruby or Go or whatever language of, you know, back-end choice. I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that we'll does happen.
3: I think it'll be a while before anything like that happens. But uh, <laughs> I think on, on the CSS side of things, it does seem like it's kind of like there was sort of a flurry of new CSS and JS solutions for a while there. And it seems like it's kind of stabilized to like style components and maybe emotion. Are those the two popular ones now?
0: I'm still a big fan of glamour, and um, okay. I don't really know if it's like like there's a lot of other stuff like emotion that's supposed to be faster, and then there's style components. But man, I've yeah. got, I you know I learned glamour and I know how to use it pretty easily. I know how to do everything like all the different effects like hover and all that stuff. And like it's one of those things that once you learn something, you just don't want to change it because you're just yeah. too efficient. <laughs> So I yeah. probably need to expand my horizons a little bit, but I'm I'm a big fan of uh, glamour.
2: Yeah, but to be fair, like what's what seems to be happening is that they they seems to be all be converging in terms of interfaces. It seems that all the all the libraries are like implementing the other library interface too. So like sound components was only like the 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 template the the string, and now they also have like objects that I think it was like emotion or something like that. So it seems that they are all...
3: Yeah, just take uh, all the good ideas and put them all together.
2: Yeah, so I think in like no time, it's going to be super easy to just go from one to the other. We just like choose the implementation.
1: This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. Triplebyte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com react. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus.
0: I think we're kind of getting close to, to being there on time. Do you want to go ahead and get to the picks?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: So, uh, Lucas, do you have any picks today? Okay, so I have one pick.
2: It's a website called workflowy.com. It's a to-do list... Uh, that is so easy to manipulate. You, it's really easy to like uh, move items around and change parents and change like the indentation of your of your to do. So it's a it's a great tool that I use to put my thoughts in order whenever I start thinking about something. So I I don't even use this uh, it, as much as a to do list, but more of like a thought organizer. And stuff like that and it's really powerful and helped me like throughout the years so it is uh, really amazing and my second pick is futureme.org it's a website that lets you send emails to the future so it's been almost 10 oh, cool. years now yeah it's been almost 10 years now that I've just been sending mails to myself in the future and it's always amazing when i receive emails from my past that
0: is so cool it is really, <laughs> really cool
2: it's really cool like and and i don't do like anything fancy i just like talk about my days and about some uncertainty i have about the future and i ask myself like lucas for the future what happened it's always oh wow no
0: way <laughs> can you send it to anyone
2: i think you can send to anyone yeah so oh, like cool. when i turned 30 I got an email from when I was twenty-five, when I was twenty-seven, and when I was twenty-eight. Oh,
0: cool! <laughs> it's like completely different. So, like my first that's so day. cool. How have I never heard of this? This At is first
2: awesome. First, mail I was like leaving to, to for a gig because I was a professional musician, and I was like, "What what's happening? Like, who am I? Who am I playing with today?" And like, I'm not even a musician anymore. And things like that. The other day, I got an email like, we're going to travel to New York tomorrow. We're moving. Like, what happened? Did, did I get a job? Like, where am I? It's, so it's so interesting like, to, to, to receive those emails from the past. Yeah, when I was about to, 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 to have my daughter, I sent a bunch of emails to the future. So I'm super like, and it's always surprising. You think it's not going to be surprising because you think about them, but like, it's always surprising. So this is one of the coolest ideas, and I donate money to them from time to time just because it's such a cool project. It's
3: cool that I'm mean, just looking at the page. They've got like uh, copyright 2002 to 2019. <laughs> We've been sending letters to the future for over 17 years now. It says It's pretty amazing to see something that's that's lasted that long and it hasn't been you know
2: yeah
3: bought out or something you know
2: feels yeah. like
3: it doesn't last that long these days.
2: It's an amazing project. It's an amazing project. It's always always so cool to, to receive my uh, to receive messages from from my past. So I recommend everyone.
0: Nice, uh, David. Do you have any picks? I don't know if I can
3: top that. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll mention the the CSS book that I sort of used you know, years ago. I, there's a, a book called CSS Mastery that I think has a more recent edition than the 2007 one that I used. Looks like they have one from 2017. That's probably probably decent. Has good ratings on Amazon. So yeah, CSS Mastery was kind of what I used to start learning CSS when I actually got down to trying to learn it. And I guess my other pick would be uh, there's a conference called Craft and Commerce, put on by a company called ConvertKit. It's happening next week in Boise, Idaho, and uh, it's a, it's a fun conference if you're into like online creation stuff. So like bloggers and YouTubers and that kind of crowd. It's a good time
0: podcasters, mm-hmm. podcasters. Yep. Yeah. All right, cool. So my pick is a book called 21 lessons for the 21st century. I started reading it a couple of days ago. It's actually the first physical book that I've bought that's non-technical. Actually, uh, the second physical book I bought that's non-technical in the last couple of years, because most of the time I listen to books, but I was actually at a really cool bookstore and like I, uh, I saw this book and I was like, you know, I'm going to get it. Anyway, it's awesome. It's really has this futuristic feel to it because he's talking about like predictions of, around what he thinks is going to happen around uh, politics and religion and, and, and the economy and all these different things over the course of the next hundred years. And uh, I really am enjoying it. So it's called uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. It's written by Yuval Noah Harari. And it's kind of, a, I would say, new newer release maybe in the last year or so because it's very, it's very current and relevant to current times around politics and and, um, a lot of tech talk in there around machine learning and and stuff like that. So yeah, check it out if you're interested in that type of stuff. All right. Well, I think that wraps up this episode. Uh, Thanks everyone for participating today. All right. All right. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Uh, We'll see everyone next week. Bye everybody.
1: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y dot com to learn more